Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of What Are You Going to Do With That? The podcast of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. My name is Dani, I'm a PhD candidate, and today's guest is from my home country, which means that this time I will pronounce her name correctly, which is Dr. Renske de Klein. Before I tell you all about her, let me remind you that we are very active on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So if you want to know more about our guests and their research, or have comments for us, we'd love to hear from you. Look us up by searching for what to do with that, or with the at symbol, what to do with that, where the two is spelled with the number two. And as I said, today I'm chatting with Dr. Renske de Klein. Renske started preparatory training in acting for one year in Utrecht, and then moved on to a BA at Utrecht University in musicology. She finished the degree with a very high grade and managed to publish two articles. This was all before starting her MA at the same university, but she moved from humanities to social sciences with the research master in educational science. She combined her master thesis with the first year of her PhD project on the topic of master thesis supervision. Now, this is a topic every student should be interested in. And if you are, I'd recommend following her account on Twitter with the name Happy PhD Supervisor or HaPhDS to stay informed about supervision practices and get some positive vibe. Renske's PhD program was also at Utrecht University at the Center for Teaching and Learning. There, she's also been an educational consultant and following the PhD, an assistant professor, before moving on to the University Medical Center of Utrecht, where she currently works as an assistant professor. In this setting, Renske focuses on feedback within the medical system, so patients to doctors and nurses to doctors. She has quite a few publications on her name, which can be found in journals such as Assessment and Evaluation in Higher Education and Computers and Education. Her current interests also lie in what's called toxic PIs and how to be a good supervisor. I have to mention here that she didn't leave music when she started a research master. Renske has been a children's choir conductor all the way through her studies. And I found out that she also did not drop her creativity altogether when she went into science. And she has just published her first children's book called Als het virus straks voorbij is, which translates to When the virus will be behind us, of which the first round is already sold out. But don't worry, the next round is on its way. So welcome Renske, I'm very happy to have you here with me today, especially because we basically grew up in the same area. I'm originally from Vught, also in Brabant, so it's a real coincidence. How are you doing today? Yeah, good. Oh, wow. It's That's such a coincidence. That's even like 10 kilometers only. So that, that we've been really close at some point. <laughs> so I'm, uh, yeah, actually I'm doing good. There, there was a tough week last week, but um, yeah, I regained my energy and I'm now really looking forward to our uh, conversation because I really like uh, following your channel as well. Oh, thank you so much. Did you bring a drink with you for today? Yes, I did. And to stay in the spheres of uh, your home country and this region, I brought a Heineken beer, of which there's a brewery here in Sertogenbos. But I have to admit, it is a 0.01, because drinking and working do not uh, go very well hand in hand in my case. <laughs> it is a struggle sometimes. It sometimes also makes me a little bit lightheaded, but it helps me with the conversation every now and then. Yeah, I can imagine. I got my Disarona right here, and I'm ah, also nice. going to pour myself one right now. Yeah, I'm going to open it, my can. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> 
I looked forward to doing this. <laughs> nice. Let me close this up before we can cheer. Yes. All right. Prost. Yeah, prost. Cheers. Okay, are you ready for a few short questions now? Yeah, bring them on. Perfect. What is your favorite time of the day and why? I'm really a morning kind of person. So uh, I usually, uh, so that would be the morning. And uh, since uh, uh, four years, I'm a proud mother. <laughs> but now I even enjoy the moments uh, more when I am awake and the kids are still asleep. So maybe it, it's also the first half hour of the day so that I can relax, think through what's going to happen and uh, mentally prepare myself and get ready. To yeah. have that moment of rest before the hectic day starts. Yeah. That's nice. What is the weirdest food that you've ever eaten? The weirdest food? Wow. I think it was on, I was with a friend on a trip to Greece and, um, and she was there for professional reasons. And I didn't know until we were there that she told them I was there for professional reasons as well. So I had to pretend to be a journalist <laughs> and I'm a very bad liar. So that was weird. And then we were at a, a press dinner and uh, so the, the, the locals there wanted us to try octopus tentacles. And um, I and there was like no way of getting out of that. So we smiled and we just tasted that. And I think that would be, uh, that was my weirdest food. And what was it like? It's so funny, but if your mind is so busy worrying about what you're eating, you can hardly even taste it. So I just remember feeling with my tongue, oh, here are those little naps. This is just weird. Okay, let's pretend it's nice. I don't want to offend these people. So I wouldn't even be able to tell you. Okay, so you were a really good Dutch ambassador for not being mean to anyone by saying no to the food. Yeah, I think I was. Yeah. <laughs> well done. <laughs> If you could pick up a new skill in an instance, what would it be? Oh, wow. I think the first thing that comes to mind is snowboarding. Okay. It looks so nice. And uh, I've been on uh, skis just for once. It was not a great success. I'm a horrible sporter anyways, like in general. So, uh, yeah, just in the outdoor idea. Yeah. It looks pretty cool, I have to say. Yeah, it does, right? Yeah, and it's and in, in the sunshine, it's outside. The only thing is that most Dutch people go on um, snowboard holidays when we have other things to celebrate here in my uh, country. So that would be uh, difficult. Would be Christmas, probably. That's right. You need to find the right time so you don't miss your own holidays. Yes. Okay, another question for you. What's your children's favorite bedtime story? Oh, that's nice. Mm, I think it's, it's going to be... Uh, the whole repertoire of a, of a Dutch uh, a book writer who's been my inspiration since I was a kid. Her name was Annie M.G. Schmidt. And um, I, th I think her most famous work was about two kids who just uh, experienced all kinds of adventures. And they were pretty, pretty naughty kids. They tried out everything that uh, I'd only uh, dream about doing, like cutting their own hair and baking their own uh, uh, weird stuff in the kitchen when their mom was out. So... I think it would be uh, Jip and Janneke. I think my personal favorite from this particular writer is actually Pluck from the Pet. Yeah, it was choosing between those. Yeah, yeah. But Jip and Janneke are pretty nice. Cool. This one is because you're a feedback researcher. So what's been the best piece of advice that you have ever been given? 
I think uh, the best advice I got from my daily supervisor when I was doing my own PhD was that she constantly reminded me about that doing a PhD is more about the journey of becoming an independent and self-aware researcher rather than uh, writing a book uh, with four publishable articles in my field because I was very product focused when I started my PhD. I was like, okay, I'm here to do my studies and to write four papers. And along the way, she uh, she just kept informing me, it's about you, it's about you becoming a researcher. And that was very, this was priceless advice. And I'm happy she persisted in saying the same thing all, uh, every time. <laughs> all right, thanks for sharing that advice. I can't wait to hear more about your PhD journey, um, but let me start at the beginning. Yeah. And that's, of course, I have to ask, how did you actually go from acting to the university and then from musicology to educational science? Sometimes I wonder myself, but it actually does make sense because my I, I think it was just my kid's dream to be an actress. Uh, so I was uh, in the acting club in my high school and then I uh, did the preparatory training in Utrecht and I auditioned for at several um, follow-up studies, but I got rejected. And then I, I, it was like, oh my gosh, in terms of feedback, that was kind of uh, hard to take in. And then I, I needed to find myself a plan B. And for me, it was important. I didn't want to do a study with big numbers of students because I just... I, I mean, I was already interested in psychology or pedagogy, but there was just such large numbers of particularly girls who were doing that. And yeah, for me, I just wanted to do something that felt a little bit more special. So that when I found the, uh, bachelor, the Bachelor of Musicology program, I was like, yeah, it still related somewhat to my plan A to become an actress. And uh, there were only 30 first year students. So I was like, yeah, this is going to be my thing. But it actually wasn't. And my music teacher already told me, he said, it's, it's, it's so, it's dull for you. It's not exciting enough. It's just theory. There's no stage. I'm happy I persisted anyway, because I think I went there to meet the love of my life, my now husband and father of my children. So I can never say I regret making that choice. But I think during the first year already, I uh, realized, okay, this is not really my thing, but I'm not not really a quitter. So I wanted to finish the program, but in the meantime, I was looking for something to do on the side, actually. And then on a website, I saw this educational program that was educational sciences. And I was, I remember just running downstairs to my mom and saying, this study was here all along. How is it possible? It hasn't crossed my path. Yet, and I just uh, registered. I didn't read up on anything or went to any introduction day. I knew it was going to be it, and it was. It was again love at first sight, but then it was with the yeah, with the content. How did you know that this was going to be it? What was in these studies that attracted you to it? Yeah, I think in the introduction text on the website, I saw there was something like, um, "What makes you?" Uh, like the one teacher and dislike the other one and how come one teacher can catch your attention and really interests you and another one doesn't um, have you ever thought about why the, your educational books are designed the way they are and I was like yes these are questions I've asked myself are there answers to them uh, is is it is it like a field to study these things and 
I think I, I'm brought up in an educational family, so a lot of uncles and aunts and my father are in education, but I just didn't consider becoming a teacher because then you'd have to pick one field. So that would have been a music teacher, but I wasn't good enough on an instrument. So I think in a bigger picture, it does make sense in hindsight that I ended up being interested in education as well. It was in your blood. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. All right. And then you chose to do what we call in the Netherlands a research master. And they are usually harder to get into than a regular master program. And they're meant to be trained in research and they continue with a PhD. Was that also the case for you? Did you choose to do the research master master because you knew you wanted to pursue a PhD? Yeah. Yeah. So when I started educational science, the educational science program, which I combined with musicology for the first year and a half, And I, there, there was the first statistics course and I, everybody was frustrated and I was like super excited. I thought, oh yes, I really missed doing calculations in musicology because it's really more of an, uh, yeah, a history study. And in music theory, there were some calculations going on, but, and I love the idea that you ask a question and there is one correct answer. You know, you do a statistical test and we have set rules uh, as a community, as a scientific community about them. And um, so I love the feeling of control that, that the numbers give you. So my teacher in the statistics course, he said, okay, this is really n like not average that people get so excited. And I just, I wanted to get a 100% score in the test Because I thought, well, it's possible. I mean, the answers are, you know, you can calculate them. I could get a 100%. And she said in the first year already, you might consider uh, doing a research master, which was then a quite new program. So it was not really well known at that point. And uh, she told me about it. And I talked to the, um, to the uh, I don't know, the, the co coordinator of the master. And he was also very excited, and so was I. So I think in the third month of the program there, I already decided, yes, this is going to be my uh, my path. So the university was very excited to find a student who actually want, liked doing this kind of research and working with statistics. Yeah. <laughs> and you were excited about finding a program that was then catered towards what you wanted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that sounds like a win-win. Yes, yes, it really was. I'm still very happy also with my teacher so proactively telling me, wow, this is uh, um, exceptional and you should really think about this. All right. And then what was it like to write an MA thesis about master thesis supervision? And why did you choose that particular topic? Yeah, that, that it, it, it's so multi-layered, right? Sometimes it feel, felt like a drost effect that because uh, you're, you're talking about supervision, but at the same time, I was being supervised, obviously. So the, the master program was a two-year program and uh, the second year was fully in the light of your master's thesis, writing your own master's thesis. But at the end of the first year, I saw a vacancy for a PhD position, which was on master's thesis supervision. And I saw the vacancy and I remember thinking, oh, no, this is not going to happen. This is such an interesting PhD position, but it's one year too early for me because I have to finish up my own master next year. And again, I discussed it with the program coordinator and he said, you know, give it a try. Just uh, apply and we'll, you'll see what happens because I think when you're in this program, you're so well trained to be a PhD student. They might be interested after all. So... Um, I applied and I got the position. So the, the theme was set. I mean, the, the, it was about master thesis supervision. And I was like, 
I'm crazy about doing research. So I'm also crazy about students learning how to do research. It was, it just it made complete sense to me. All right. Can you tell us a little bit about your own experiences with your supervisor while writing about supervision? Yeah, it was, it, it, it's so funny because I, uh, I, in the end, I had three supervisors. Okay. So one was from my master's program. And two were from the uh, the department of uh, at which the PhD position was, because those were in different departments, and they were very culturally different groups also. So they had different ways of looking at working life, different journals that they were interested in, and mainly also different sphere of. Uh, how hard you should be working, the sacrifices you should be making f- for wanting to be a uh, researcher. And sometimes I did s- struggle with it. But yeah, at the same time, it was nice that I could see two ways of dealing with being a researcher and then finding my own way of what fitted with me. And I, I think one of my supervisors, she was... Um, not really into the meta dialogue. So when I t- tried to talk about our own supervision process, she was always a bit like, no, that's this, that's soft. Let's talk about your papers. And that was sometimes very confusing because I was like, but this is what my papers are about. If, if you would not be interested in talking about it in our own situation, then who actually am I writing these papers for? So uh, the other two were way more open to this uh, meta dialogue. All right. And then, what advice would you give our listeners when choosing a supervisor and in how to deal with a supervisor who then comes up with very different ideas than maybe a second or third supervisor? Yeah, so I think uh, in our country, it's less common that you choose your own supervisor. Usually supervisors have opened positions that you can apply to. So I'm not so familiar with choosing your own supervisor. So, and it's, it's difficult because I see these tweets sometimes as well of students asking for advice, but what would, should we discuss in our first conversation? I'm like, yeah, wow, in one conversation, that's so difficult to tick off all the things that you would need to know to make sure there's a, a proper fit. But I do think work ethics and the expectations on that side and expectations of a dissertation and expectations of frequency of meetings for instance i think those are pretty important and if you if there's a possibility i would definitely talk to some of their prior students to hear what their experiences are how susceptible how susceptible they are for feedback on their own supervision practices for instance because i think having a dialogue both ways about how things are going really helps okay that sounds like good advice And you said that you saw a lot of these questions on Twitter, where you have an account under a different name, right? Do you want to tell me more about that? Yeah. Is that a project that you're doing on the side or is it related to your research? Yeah, it it was a bit on the side. I I had some uh, physical setbacks, so I wasn't able to work that much, but I, I felt like my work energy was still just like in my head. I just wanted to engage with colleagues. And I became more active on Twitter. And then I decided just to to make an account just dedicated to research supervision. Because I think a lot of there's a lot of uh, discussions and interaction going on, on in the academic Twitter community. And I just wanted to yeah, share some positive vibes. As you said in the introduction, it's really what... Because it, I think a lot of students struggle with them. So it's not to... 
to cover it up, but ma- mainly that I think there is a need for some more positivity. And my mission now in a paper that I'm writing and also with the Twitter account is to also try and give very small pieces of advice to PhD students or master students on what they can do to contribute to a well-working feedback dialogue with their supervisor. And I mean, I know there's toxic PIs and then it won't matter. Whatever you do as a student, you won't get through to them. But I think there are some small tics, tips and tricks that just that can help you to uh, open up um, a conversation with them on difficult topics. All right, I've checked it out a little bit and I'm following you on Twitter. I'm also on Twitter next to our podcast account, which I want everyone to follow. And it has given me exactly what you're saying because of these small pieces of advice in 120 characters or maybe a little bit more here and there. Very simple tips, but that maybe even reassure me that if I would do it this way, then maybe at least I'm working on it towards a better relationship that you then have with a supervisor or a PI. You just mentioned the term uh, a toxic PI. What is that exactly? Yeah, when I think about my my own uh, PhD project, I interviewed several uh, supervisors and I remember one of them saying, he said, because uh, I asked, how do you um, differ your supervision strategies uh, based on the students that you have in front of you? And he was very firm, like, no, I'm the supervisor. I do it my way. It's up to the student to adapt to me or to any other teacher that they encounter. That's life. I do it this way, period. And... Um, I, th- I do think he has the best inten- he had the best intentions as I truly believe most people have but I, I think if you're so I don't know like stubborn in your own perspective that is has a high chance of becoming being perceived as toxic at least because I think interaction between people in any situation also if there's a hierarchy of you being a supervisor and someone else being the supervisee uh, there has to be two-way communication about how can we make this thing work and I, I think those who are really st- strong-willed in wanting wanting it to be a one-way street, uh, I, I I really hope the next generation of academics, which who those who are now postdocs or PhD students or beginning assistant uh, professors, that it's a new generation of people who uh, are going to do things differently. I hope so too. Yeah, and, and then I really feel like uh, that's the happy in happy PhD supervisor. I'm like, we are the new generation. Let's do this. We can do this. All right, let's take the lead. Yeah. I've been speaking to quite a few young researchers about how academia seems to be all about rejection. And I feel this is also something that comes back in this uh, toxic PI, right? Like uh, this person is basically rejecting your ideas because he wants you to adapt to his or her ideas. Um, And then there's, of course, always rejection of a grant application, of research positions, of article publications. So as a feedback researcher, how do you think people in their early stage career can learn to deal with rejection or negative feedback? Yeah, I think there's expectation management. So um, if I think about the students that I now supervise myself, I, I, I share with them when my papers are rejected, which also happens like I all the time, I would almost say, um, so that they know it's not about them. And I had one professor in uh, in my department and I really looked up to him. He was like the founding father of our whole department. And he said, Renske, in my whole career, it happened to me just once. 
that I got an article back and they said, it's brilliant. We're going to place it once. And it helped me, you know. So I think expectation management will help so that you know it is not about you. And sometimes it is a lottery and it depends on who your reviewers are and what their interests are and what their publications are on and if you have uh, luckily cited them or not. So I think, and I think the other part is celebrate small wins. So, and I think I was so proud of one of my students last week because she had her first paper rejected, which was not nice. So we submitted to another journal and we worked on the manuscript based on the feedback she got. Um, And now it was sent out for review. And we really, you know, like celebrated it. We were like, yes, this is a step further than you were at the first submission. It's a good sign. We, we progressed. Let's see what happens now. So breaking things up in smaller pieces other than the end goal of a publication or, you know, the, the, the actually getting the grant uh, can help. All right. I'll cheer to that. I hope she gets in this time. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> so... As young researchers, we're dealing with rejection and also something that I've seen coming up a lot lately is the imposter syndrome. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I shared uh, on my Twitter account a Dutch song on the imposter syndrome, which I just really fell in love with. And one of my colleagues, she really encouraged me to try and translate it. And I did so and I contacted the original performance and they're now really considering to record it in English. So I really hope that I can share the English version of the song sometime soon to support our Twitter community struggling with the imposter syndrome as well. That sounds great. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, me too. I think the way to, to deal with that imposter syndrome is very different for everyone, very personal. And one way of coping for me is going to the gym five times a week. Ah, yeah. Especially kickbox gets some frustration out of me. And I know that you have maintained your passion for music through conducting a children's choir, which sounds great. Do you have any tips on how to not lose yourself in the PhD and the research and the successes, but maintain hobbies and other things in life that are important to make you enjoy life? Yeah, yeah. I think it is so important to have something else that's you know not uh, academically related per se so for me it was also the conducting during my uh, my my time as a phd student and the thing is that i think as a phd student i even managed my time better because then there was no one was dependent on me i knew this is what i'm doing for me and i set my goals and my standards and my goal for now is working 40 hours a week and going home when it, when the clock hits like 5 or 5.30. And I think I managed to do so pretty well. I, I struggle with it more now, uh, now that uh, other students are dependent on my input, for instance. So for me, really, the conducting was very helpful because it's a complete different energy when you're in front of a group of uh, children singing on top of their lungs, preferably. Uh, so for me, that that really helped. And, you know, spending time with friends and family and trying to really be uh, tight on not using your weekends for uh, for work. Because the thing is, when you're writing your PhD thesis, it's never done. Never. And there's always this other thing you could have added. So it's so difficult to draw the line somewhere. So maybe that would be my main advice. Make sure where your line is and try and draw it. Communicate it to others so that they know they can help you to uh, 
to, to protect it. Right. In case, so that you don't actually get a burnout for just keep going yeah. and going and going yeah. endlessly. Yeah, it's it's such a pitfall. Yeah. You need weekends or evenings off, right? Yeah. To Absolutely. also let it go just a little bit. Yeah, but then it, sometimes it feels if it, uh, like it's so easy to say these things. But if you're in a lab or in a research group which has a complete different research culture, it's so much more difficult to manage this. So I think um, I, I feel for those who are in these situations who are passionate about the content of their studies, but are in a culture where it's just less accepted when you are strict on your working hours. And maybe more competitive, so you feel like you have to keep going to be part of the game. Yeah, yeah. But when all, all the others do so, yeah. So is there anything we can think of as advice for people who are in such a culture? Yeah, I think it's difficult. So I hope they find some support in the academic Twitter community as a whole, because I think they're, the attention for self-care and mental health are really good. I, I feel it's a warm community out there. So, uh, yeah, and, and try and be the, the, the next generation. Talk about it with peers or other or find other peers who feel the same way in other labs, for instance. But, uh, but it is difficult. Yeah, I've heard that a lot before, too, that we actually need peers who feel the same way or are in a similar situation. Um, whereas if you're a master student and you're taking classes, you meet people automatically. Yeah. But when you're doing a PhD, you do it at home a lot. And especially the corona situation has shown yeah. that people are not made to work alone at home no. all the time, which for PhD students until now was very normal. Yeah. I tell my students now, I say, uh, like, you know, the, the, the rates of PhD students not finishing their projects is already pretty high. And uh, I mean... Different studies show that PhD students find it f feel lonely and find it a lonely uh, journey. I mean, these circumstances at this moment in the world, it, it, it would almost be weird if you would not feel lonely and frustrated and, ha and are struggling with your motivation at some point in these circumstances. It's really tough. So the first step is to open a Twitter account, which is just one click away. Yeah. And uh, see... Uh, who else is out there? Yeah, connect. Great, exactly. Then I've actually already come to my last question, which is always about the afterlife of the PhD. What is your next project and what are you going to do with that? Haha, <laughs> nice. My next project, or actually my current project, is that I'm writing a paper um, on how to ask for feedback, and which is actually also a call for teachers to address this with their students. Um, and their PhD students. So, because I really think there's a lot to win in feedback processes. Because also in for feedback, we've very long seen this as information that is being sent from someone to someone, uh, and we were mostly thinking about the sending part. So, what if, what's effective feedback? And it, then we think about the timing of when the information is sent and the the proportion of positive and negative comments. And now there's really this change going on in feedback research that's like, oh, wait a minute, feedback is effective only if the receiver understands it, accepts it, and feels motivated to use it. Um, so I think if we prepare and instruct students better how to use their feedback, how and when to ask for feedback, what would be good feedback questions, and what feedback questions could you better avoid? I'm really passionate about moving this line forward and uh, finishing up the paper that I'm writing about it 
and then making some uh, online modules for students to work through to actually learn these skills. So another skill that universities could be teaching students in, for example, these research masters, right? Yeah, absolutely. Nice. I'd be looking forward to that article. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to share it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'll cheer to that then. Yeah. Before I move on to a few last short questions. Great. Okay. What was the most important conference that you've been to? Um, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, I feel such a researcher. So in my mind, it's like, uh, okay, importance in terms of what? But I think um, uh, the most impressive one was when I went to the ARA for the first time. It's uh, the uh, yearly conference of the American Association for Educational Research. And uh, I'm not a, a fan of traveling a lot. I just really like my hometown and my home country. So going to America was already quite a uh, big step. And it was so big. There's thousands of educational researchers and, and at first I felt a bit lost. I was like, whoa, I'm such a small piece of this big thing here. But um, the interesting thing was that I, there was this one person and I'd already seen him in a couple of sessions. And we were and at some point we recognized each other like, hey, you again. And then we uh, started the conversation and then it appeared we had already been in contact through email because uh, he was also doing feedback research. And then it completely changed my mind about being such a small part, like having uh, making which made no sense to me on such a big conference. But then I realized, no, there's a lot of subgroups within this bigger picture. And it really represented academia as a whole to me. You know, there's so many people involved in doing research and we all try to fit small pieces to the same big puzzle. And I really, uh, I really liked it. Yeah. Where was that? You said in the U.S.? I think it was in Denver. All right. <laughs> and that was the first time in the U.S. because you like yeah. going down more. Yeah, yeah. But there's plenty of conferences in the Netherlands too, right? Yeah, there are very interesting things. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, my imposter syndrome then tells me, you're not a real deal of an academic because you don't travel and you haven't been studying abroad. And, you know, so that's, uh, that's a conversation I sometimes have in my mind. And then I talk back and I say, no, you can connect to others over the world other ways. Exactly. I think so too. Have you received a scholarship? No, and I, I haven't applied to any. So in, in Holland, there are some scholarships for young researchers. And at my former department, there was quite a big push that you had to try and apply for. It's called a Veni. Uh, but I decided not to do so. And, and that was also a uh, decision of not joining that red race. That price was too high because I knew it would take up all my weekends and evenings to work on it because I'd seen it for other uh, young researchers. And I decided, no, that's not a price I'm going to pay. It was too much work for what you might or most likely not actually get. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't have my good idea at that at that moment. It came a, a few years later that I was like, yes, now I really found my topic and my thing. It was too early too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? Oh, I really think it's going to be this paper that I'm now working on. <laughs> it sounded like a good one. Yeah, it was rejected for the first time and I got really good feedback. So, um... I'm about to uh, resubmit to another journal, but I, uh, it feels like this is the, the, the paper of my life so far. Yeah. So I really hope uh, that it'll be, uh, yeah, that it'll be published and that I can share it with others because I'm 
Popelend, to say it in Dutch. I can't wait. <laughs> nice. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Yeah. I think it would be the person I look up to the most at this point. It's a researcher from the UK. Her name is Naomi Winstone. And when I first read her a paper she wrote in 2017, up until then I hadn't heard of her. And I was reading the paper and it was so good and eloquently written and respectful to the paper she was referring to and she has such good ideas and she's such a nice person and it was the first time I I wrote to someone that I just didn't know like oh my god I'm really your fan what a brilliant paper thank you so much for your work and the inspiration I got from it and uh, yeah it really ended up being a nice conversation uh, uh, on the way and now we're trying to look for ways to collaborate and I don't know. It, it feels as if I would recognize her papers without seeing her name because they are so they're so good and inspirational to me. And I I really like to have um, female researchers to look up to because I uh, it helps me. I second that. Yeah. And then my last question of today is: How do you relax after a hard day of work? Yeah, good question. And it is changing actually because uh, last week for the first time, rather than doing yoga or taking a walk. I put on my running shoes for uh, for the first time since I think like six years, <laughs> and I I noticed it really helped me even better to get to more be into my body and out of my head, and I think so. Physical activity in general would be uh, what works for me, or singing, yeah. Do you get to sing a lot at home? Uh, I try to do so because I'm not conducting anymore, so now I try to sing with my two kids. Uh, and I don't sing that much when they're in bed in the evenings, so I try to fit it in on uh, and, uh, daily hours. Yeah, but it, it helps me as well to really clear my mind and also to reprioritize. When I'm out of, when I come out of writing, I, then that is the important thing in my life, and I can, I can only think about when is the first moment I can get back to writing. And I really need to get out of that mindset to be present in my personal life with my kids which is also very important. way more important but i find it sometimes i struggle with uh, yeah making the switch understandably all right well thank you again renske for joining me today i think we touched upon some very important things and i'll definitely take on some of your feedback and tips i'd also like to thank our listeners don't forget to follow us and renske on twitter and find her by searching for happy phd supervisor you have to also tell me more about your children's book that you just released about Corona. What is it about exactly? And I'm also curious who did the illustrations. Yeah. Well, it was. I was at first. I was just thinking, my kids won't have active memories from this period because they are two and four year old, so they won't remember. While this period is also very intense for them and. Uh, confusing why can't we visit grandpa and grandma uh, why can't we go to our favorite theme park the Efteling you know those kind of questions and I thought I want to record something of their experiences so you know when in 10 years we still talk about this period I'm positive that we're still we still be talking about what's happening now and they won't remember I just wanted to write it down and as I said I'm a really big fan of Annie Schmidt who wrote a lot of I don't know rhymes for children and then I thought, oh, maybe I could put it in rhyme, their experiences. And it went so fluently, just, you know, it, it, it walked out of my pen. And 
I was like, I think this is also interesting for other kids, you know? So I, my, uh, my mommy friends, I asked them, said, hey, I'm writing this, what do you think? Does it apply to your kids? And they were very enthusiastic. And just one of my best friends said, if you're gonna make this a children's book, I can do the illustration. And it was on my bucket list since forever. And I was like, let's do it. Also to have some positive vibes, you know, in this really strange period. My dad just got out of the hospital with Corona. It was a really intense period and I wanted to have something positive to spend my time on. So um, I just did it. And now they're all sold out. So there were 300 books and they were sold out in a week and we got 300 more and now I'm, I'm out of them. So it was, oh, it's, it was such a great experience. Yeah. Beautiful. You should send me a copy and maybe put in a pack of Hageslag and Stroopwafels. Yeah. <laughs>